Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. Well, good morning. How are you? So, uh, maybe you know this, but uh, men's retreat's been going on this weekend, and uh, some of us just drove back in early this morning. The men are kind of wrapping up right now out there. Some of you were out there and are now here, so welcome back. And Thinking about this, I've, I've made this observation over time. I think when you're in one place for a long time, and most of you know I've been here a long time. Uh, churches go through periods of conquest and consolidation. And conquest is super fun. I mean, that's a, everybody likes when the church is in a season of conquest. That means we're growing. New people are showing up. You know, we're, we're introducing new ideas and programs. And it, it is fun. It is fun when you're in conquest. You know, it's, it's just a great time. But you can't live always in conquest. Sometimes you have to go into another period called consolidation. And in consolidation, then you're figuring stuff out. You're, you know, you're realigning job description and you're moving people around to need and you're trying to, you know, to kind of get momentum back and figure out what to do next. And, and you live in these seasons over time in the life of the church. And, and my question is, I, I really think that's true of human beings, not just churches. If I were to ask you how you see that in your journey and in your life. Do you see the seasons in your life that were conquest, and do you see the seasons in your life where it's consolidation? Because in a healthy life, you're moving between these things. Now, generally speaking, what we do is when we're young, we're in conquest. There's a lot of things to conquer. There's a lot of things we're going to do. We're very optimistic. You know, we can't wait to grow up. We can't wait to get to do things. And I, I think about it in this. Maybe you remember this far back, but you used to go to an amusement park. You used to go to Disneyland, and it said you have to be this high to ride this ride. And there was a little part of you as a child going, someday, someday that'll be me. And it's a little disappointing when you're finally tall enough and you get to ride all the rides, and you're like, that's it. Now I've ridden them all. I got no more no more places to go with my life. I've pretty much achieved everything there is to achieve. And I think as we are, get a little older, we sort of get into a mindset that our time of conquest is over, and we stop shifting so much between conquest and consolidation, and something happens inside of us, and we quit really wanting to be in conquest. We sort of like consolidation, and as we get older, we're like, you know what I want? I want a good pair of shoes. It's my life goal right now. I want a nice place to sit. I need the TV to be big enough for me to see because it's getting harder, loud enough for me to hear because that's an issue. And I don't think that's how God created us. I think He intended for us to constantly, sometimes we have to be in consolidation. We're figuring some stuff out. We're rewriting maybe how we do things. We're trying some new things. But there is always a season that comes where we move back into conquest. We're not done. We're not finished. It's not over. There's more for us to accomplish. So we're thinking this morning about mission and what it means to 
to get first things first and what it means to be in our mission. And we're doing that with Peter and some of the things that he has to say. And, and so what's going on as we move kind of into chapter 4 of this letter, and just to give you a little background again, is you know he's writing this from Rome. It's about 62 A.D., so we're right at the brink of the first great wave of persecution in the church. And Peter is already sensing the climate. He's feeling the weight of it. And the church in Asia Minor is where he's writing this letter. And, and if you think about the geography of what's happening, uh, some of you are in the, the Israel study we're doing on Thursday night. By the way, thanks for being here at 10 o'clock. You heard that announcement about go away. That's not exactly, you know, <laughs> thank you for being here. Please leave. No, that's not really what we're saying. But just for you to know this little tidbit of information, uh, most people who do not attend church will most likely attend church at 10 a.m. on a Sunday morning. So if a person is kind of new and they don't really know much about church, this would be the hour that they most desire to come. Same reason you want to come. It's the most convenient time. It's not too early. It's not too late. It's just right. <laughs> but here's another little tidbit. 80% capacity is more than full for a new person. 80% capacity, they feel a little uncomfortable, and they might not come back because it's just too crowded. Now, if you've been here for a while, you're like, hey, the more the merrier. Let's cram in here. Yeah, come on. You know. So just a thought as you pray about that, that missional move you know, to 1130. Someday 1130 will be full, and then we'll start an early service. I'm just checking to see if you really were excited about that. 6 a.m. is going to be awesome. I don't, I don't get up at 6 a.m. No. So, so what I like to think about is, so Peter's writing this letter. If you were in the Israel thing on Thursday night, you know that uh, Israel's a very unique geographically located place. It connects three land masses, three continents, Asia, Europe, and Africa. And so when you think about the Roman Empire, of course, Rome is the center of the Roman Empire. But Asia Minor becomes that outpost that reaches far east into Asia and, and sort of, you know, hovers over that whole Middle East down into northern Africa. And so, so the strength of the Roman Empire displayed in Asia Minor is enormous. It's very strong. And so the climate in Rome is being reflected in Asia Minor, and there's a worry about what's coming and the persecution. And he's writing the letter to encourage these believers to say, hey, some hard times are coming, so be ready. Get first things first. Get your minds clear, because we're going to have to figure this out together. And so he's writing the letter. And by chapter 4 here, verse 7, he's, he's introducing the conclusion. That's what he's doing. He's going to talk conclusion here for a little while. But this is the opening of his concluding statements. And so, as most typical New Testament writers are, they have a tendency when they get to the end to say, and now, here's what you do. Here's the introduction. And so he has this wonderful introductory sentence to his conclusion. And here it is. The end of all things is near. I mean, that would get your attention, wouldn't it? <laughs> Dear friend, the end of all things is near. And so what does he mean by this phrase that is the introduction to his conclusion? Well, he might mean several things. One thing that he might mean is he might mean that Jesus' return is imminent. He might mean the end of all things is near, so don't get too worried because Jesus is coming right back. That would be logical because the New Testament church did believe that Jesus was coming right back. When he looked at those, that crowd and he said to them, some of you standing here, will not taste death until you see the kingdom of God coming in its 
power. Now, now we believe he meant Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit and the gift of the Holy Spirit. You know, now we kind of reflect on his words based on what happened. But the early believers thought he would be right back, that he had died, was resurrected, and he was coming right back. So much so that there are big issues in the New Testament if you watch for them. One is the early church took no time to educate their children in the ways of Christianity other than around the family hearth because they didn't believe their children were going to get very old before Jesus came back. So we do see a little crisis happening as we kind of move into the second, third, fourth decades from the resurrection of Christ because then the church gets busy putting together their Christian education plan. Starting then the process. The second thing that we see, and it's much more prominent, and that is some believers start to die before Jesus has come back. And so Paul spends an enormous amount of time writing to believers and going, I don't want you to be confused about people who have fallen asleep in Christ. I don't want you to get, you know, because you didn't think anybody was going to die until he came back. So he may mean by this phrase that the return of Jesus is imminent and the church is still adjusting to what it means, what God means when he says soon. We don't, soon is pretty relative, I suppose. The second thing that he might mean is he might be referring to the fact that the nature of human life is transitory, that, that it doesn't last long. And that's a common theme. Jesus teaches that, you know, a human life is like the grass of the field. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. So he might be saying, hey, here's a word of encouragement. You know, Jesus is coming soon. Or he might mean, well, you're not going to be here long anyway. So be encouraged. <laughs> Woo. <laughs> He might mean that. He might be trying to use language that causes people to go, hey, I better wake up. Because most of us have a tendency to walk around in something of a fog. Now, I don't doubt that somebody here, maybe somebody online, you, you have some discipline that on every Monday you wake up and you have a process you go through to remind yourself of the real priorities of life and what it all means. And you remind yourself, okay, this is, I'm on point, I'm on mission, here we go, <laughs> another week. Not anybody, really. Because most of us get up on Monday morning, and what are we thinking about? Am I having oatmeal or an egg? Should I have coffee? I don't know. I don't like to have coffee this early. I'm going to have juice. No, I shouldn't have juice. There's a lot of sugar. I'll just have a Diet Coke. That'll be good. There's no sugar in that. Because we have a tendency to get our eyes down into what's the very next thing I have to do. We don't think about the meaning of life. And so maybe he's using language that says, wake up. Don't walk around in a fog. But most likely what he means is all of that. <laughs> Jesus is coming soon. Your life's short. Don't waste it. Wake up. And so I think there's something in the urgency of this phrase that he wants to say, there are things that are urgent, but they're temporary. It's a pretty good lesson for us. I think we live in a world that it lives on the edge of outrage, so there's a lot of urgency in our world. You can just go look at a news channel. You can go do whatever. There's a lot of, evidently, there's been a balloon watching us. I don't know. That's both terrifying and silly. I don't know. But there's an urgency about it. That's a big deal, I guess. And so he's living in this language in which he's saying there are urgent things but they're temporary things. So pay attention, but don't get crazy. <laughs> Wake up, but, but, but don't lose your mind. It's urgent. And so his response that he desires from these people is because of the urgent and temporary nature of life, they become, listen now, focused and vigilant. 
I know what first things belong first. I'm focused and I'm vigilant. I, I don't just think about it once in a while. I, I, I am able to not only think about it, but I'm also able to dwell there. I, I kind of live there. I do wake up and think about those things. I do process at that level because I'm on mission. I have conquest in my life. There, I'm here for something besides perpetuating my own existence. I have a purpose. I have something to accomplish in the world. I don't know if this ever happens to you, but, but, but I sometimes think I do a lot. Like I'm really working hard. Like I'm really, really, really busy. Anybody else feel like you're really super busy all the time? You never take a break. It's just too much. You people are so dishonest at church. You just sit out there like, yeah, no, that'll never. But I could ask the people you live with, and they're like, yeah, they're always saying that they never get a break, they're always busy. How many of you really feel like you're busy all the time and you don't get to rest? Thank you. It wasn't that hard. And I think that, and then I encounter people that do so much more than I do, and I feel a little silly. Does that ever happen to you? Like, you know... Like, I'll meet somebody. In fact, I was just over at Pasadena this morning. Cutter Calloway was sitting in the room, you know. And, I, you know, I just I look at Cutter, and I think, I don't know if you know Cutter. He's a professor at Fuller. I think he writes a book a week. <laughs> it's like every week he's publishing a book. I'm like, Cutter, give us a break. I, I feel bad enough about myself already. I don't need you to remind me that I'm doing nothing. You know? And you encounter people like that in your world. You think you're doing a lot, and then suddenly you encounter someone, and you go, I, I, I just don't even know why I'm here. I don't even know. I'm not even half trying, really. If you don't feel that way, let me help you. <laughs> Did you know this? Thomas Edison didn't sleep at night. Interesting fact. <laughs> he believed that to sleep all night was a waste of time, and he couldn't stay ahead of his competitors. So he took short naps during the day and didn't sleep at night. I don't think I'm up for that. I don't think I'm that committed. <laughs> I mean, I don't sleep at night, but it's not because I don't want to. <laughs> and in his lifetime, he secured over 2,300 patents. He invented over 2,300 things. I'm hardly, I'm hardly scratching the surface of having significance. I like this quote that he had. Opportunity is missed by most people because it's dressed in overalls and it looks like work. <laughs> Isn't that a great, work, great quote? I just want to rest, really. <laughs> I just want to rest. Albert Einstein won the Nobel Prize in 1921. He won the Nobel Prize in 1921, the Nobel Prize for Physics in 1921. He was 42 years of age when he won the Nobel Prize. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was 42 years of age and I won the Nobel Prize, that would mean... You know, the Nobel Prize. You, you are the best of the best of the best of achievement. You are the greatest physicist in the world, at least for right now. Yes. You can kind of go, hey, got a Nobel Prize. I'm going to coast. <laughs> Einstein continued to work in the field until well into his 80s. For the next 40 years, in fact, he continued. And what we know about Einstein is that he worked long, long hours. And later in his life, he developed a very chronic heart condition. And the doctor said, well, you need to retire. You're going to shorten your life because of the way you work. And Einstein said, well, that's just going to have to be how it is. And he continued to work. In 1955, he had a, a, a cardiac episode in his office. And he was rushed to the hospital. 
And on the way out the door, he grabbed a speech off of his desk. He was scheduled to do an interview for Israeli television later in the week. And in the ER, as they were working on him, he was editing the speech. <laughs> he didn't survive. He died in the ER while editing the speech. And I feel like I'm busy, like I'm super committed. <laughs> I think sometimes, you know, what are we doing with our lives? What are we producing? What is happening to us? There are these people. And so, so now I think Peter is writing this letter. He's introducing the conclusion. And I want you to listen carefully to what he has to say because I think it's incredibly significant. Four, chapter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God might be praised through Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. It's a powerful, beautiful sequence of writing. I see five things that I think matter. Number one, I think what Peter is saying to the crowd is the end of all things is near. It's urgent, but it's temporary. Be vigilant and focused. And here's where you focus. Get your mind on your mission. Get your mind on your mission. Be sober-minded and alert, he says. Now, this Greek phrase is a really fascinating one because what it literally means is don't be insane. I mean, I know none of you people are insane, but you might know people who are. Don't you feel like sometimes the world has just gone insane? I love what Bill, William Barclay writes about this piece of vocabulary. Listen to what he writes. The wisdom which characterizes someone who is supremely sane and to preserve one's sanity is this word. The great characteristic of sanity is that it sees things in their proper proportion. It sees what things are important and what things are not. It's not swept away by sudden and transitory enthusiasms. It's prone to neither an unbalanced fanaticism nor an unconcerned indifference. It is only when we see our lives and circumstances in the light of God's truth and in the light of His Word that we can possibly see them in their proper proportions. It's when God is given His proper place that everything takes its proper place. That's powerful. I, I don't want to be insane. I want to see things in there. I want to be sober-minded and alert. And that means I'm seeing things in their proper proportion. Do we? Do you? Do you see things in their proper proportion? Do you major on the minors? And do you minor on the majors? Do you, do you believe that you see? And then I like that other piece. Because until God becomes a piece of that equation... It's very hard for us to see anything in accurate proportion until His Word and His presence and His Spirit are influencing our idea of proportion. So I'll just be honest. What happens to us? We get very, very preoccupied with us. Okay, I get very preoccupied with me. My stuff, my issues, 
what I want, what I need, what I think, what I feel, what I'm upset about, what I'm not. It just seems like that our lives get down into this sort of perspective. And if I don't have God's Word, and I don't have God's Spirit to remind me that life has urgencies, but it's temporary, and I need to be focused, I need to get my mind right. There are conquest pieces for me to be involved in that are much more than perpetuating my own existence. Amen? And I know we're all so busy. We all have more than enough to do. I love what Viktor Frankl says. Until we come to a place where we have allowed our lives to serve a greater purpose than ourselves and to serve something other than ourselves, we will never find happiness. Happiness is a byproduct of finding your purpose in the world. You cannot pursue it. You can only enjoy it. Are we in our right mind? Be sober-minded. So we get our mind on our mission. And then he says, and when your mind's right, pray. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded so that you may pray. I'm not sure we dance in the prayer mode in the way that God ever intended for us to dance in the prayer mode. Most of us see prayer as an analytical process by which we make known our needs to God and invite Him to fix things that are broken in our lives. So we'll do a quick survey. You don't need to raise your hand. Um, Most of us pray about what's bothering us, what's bothering our life. That's what we pray about. And I think the invitation of prayer is certainly to offer our requests. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, make your requests known to God. I mean, we are invited not to carry around burdens, but to offer them to God. However, (laughs) prayer is an invitation to climb into the waters that can heal your heart and your soul. I wonder how much of our faith exists right here in our analytical processing. <laughs> I don't know, I grew up with the, the idea that, you know, every day I was supposed to read my Bible and pray. You know, and the more you read your Bible and prayed, the more spiritual you were. And it wasn't very long before you go, check. Did you read your Bible? Check. Did you pray? Check. It became an analytical checklist of things I needed to do to be a good Christian. (laughs) And then I look at Jesus' life. You know, you remember him? He's the Son of God. And he is constantly getting away to pray, to be with the Father, to be immersed, to swim in the presence of God so that God heals and informs. He's not analytically being in the presence of God. He's He's soaking, he's basking, <laughs> he's, he's celebrating, he's allowing deep things inside his... In a few minutes, we're going to share communion together. I think the symbolism of this moment is so powerful and mystical. Because this is how it works. I don't know what you do when you eat, but when I eat, I just think about eating. I don't think, I need to eat this because my right foot is hurting, and so I'm going to eat this food... And then my body will need to, in fact, I'll eat this and say, God, help this food fix my right foot because my right foot seems to be lacking some nourishment of some kind. I don't eat food and try to assign it to places in my body. I don't really think about where it's going, except I do think about the fact that it's making me fat. I do think about that. But how many of us actually eat food and go, 
there's some part of my body and brain that needs this. Okay, I'm eating this so that my head feels better. So I think that the table of God is that illustration. <laughs> Welcome the presence of God and let it nourish you and heal you wherever you need to be nourished and healed. You don't have to always figure it out. You don't have to always assign God where he needs to work. <laughs> Sometimes you can just say, I would like to bathe in the presence of God so that he could therapeutically work in my heart, mind, and spirit, and life in ways that I don't even know I need. But I could just bask here. I could just swim around in his presence. And here's another factor. When I'm thinking about the needs of people that I know, my kids, my grandkids, my family, I can be very analytical in my prayer life. But how often should I just say, would you bathe them? <laughs> would you just bathe them in your presence? My prayer is that you would wash over them. My prayer is that you would just be present with them. There's probably things you need to do in their lives that I have no idea how to even ask. I just want to pray your presence over them. It's probably the best thing I could ever do for them. If I could just get my brain to turn off and stop making lists for God to do lists. Okay, get on that right away, please. And instead, when I'm in my right mind, when I see things in their appropriate proportions, I can pray, God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then he says this funny little verse. Not only are we to pray, but then we're to cover everything in prayer. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. What a weird verse. Because, you know, we're immediately like, hey, we're not in the business of covering up sin. That is not what, no, 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 no. That is not what we're here for. Isn't that interesting little verse? What a, what a, get in your right mind, bathe your life, pray, and love each other deeply. We live in a culture that tells us this. If we keep working hard and whacking people, eventually we're going to get everything fixed. Oh, no, we're not. If we just keep that, if we just keep trying, if we get the right people elected, if we get this, and we get that, and then, and then everything's going to be good. No. Because people are annoying. And they're frail. And they're weak. And they're imperfect. And the best of them are weak and imperfect. And if we keep waiting to love people until they're all all right and fixed, there's not going to be a lot of love going around because all of us are imperfect. And so Christ loved us while we were still all broken. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now you go love people like that. That's what Paul means. That's what Peter means. He means, <laughs> listen, when you get in your right mind and you get on your mission and you pray in the proportion to which it's been given to you, then love each other deeply. Because love covers over all those imperfections and little shortcomings. and little, We don't call them out all the time. We're not waiting on everything to be perfect in order to care about each other, in order to connect. I don't know if you know this, but, but relationships are messy. And, and we're drawn to the ones that require the least of us. But the, the, the relationships that require the least of us are seldom the ones that are best for us. <laughs> the ones that are best for us are the ones that 
cause us to think and forgive and connect and choose. And we're to love each other deeply. Do we? And then he says, number four, do not neglect hospitality. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. I like the progression because, you know, he says love each other. And, and I think that's a very subjective reality, you know. I love you. <laughs> well, you hurt my feelings. Yeah, but I love you. Well, you were mean to me. Yeah, but I love you. <laughs> well, you know, you haven't talked to me in a week. Yeah, but I love you. <laughs> it's all up in here. No. I've got a lot of love in me. <laughs> but hospitality is not quite so subjective, is it? <laughs> it's very objective. <laughs> Be hospitable to everyone. That means show up, welcome, connect, serve. It's actual literal stuff that happens for the benefit of others. You can't fake hospitality. You can't sit in your house by, your house by yourself and go, I'm being very hospitable. No, no, you're not. <laughs> oh, no, you're not. Be hospitable. I think as a general thing, our culture is starving for human connection in meaningful relationship. And the church is supposed to be the place where we have our heads right. We become sober-minded and alert. We're on our mission, which is allowing us to pray in the appropriate ways. And then we're loving like no other. I mean, we just, this is the most loving place on earth. And then we are hospitable to one another without grumbling, he says. Because evidently Peter understands human nature, which is, oh, no. I got to help somebody, I got to serve somebody, I got to respond and react in that way. Men's retreat was this weekend. I think it's a fascinating study in human nature. A bunch of men getting together at a retreat. And so we have an intentionality with the men's retreat, and that is we're going to make them talk to each other. You know, it's really fascinating. So they sit around tables and we say, you know, we start slow. Tell people at your table your favorite meal you ever ate. Men can talk about this. This is a topic they know. You know well, I had a pizza one time as big as my head. It was delicious, you know. But it is fascinating to watch what happens over a couple of days with a bunch of guys when you intentionally ask them to get to know each other. I guarantee you, as they are breaking up right now, this is what's happening out there at that conference. Center. I love you, man. I'm so glad I met you this weekend. Oh, I'll always be your friend. People who are strangers Friday night, they all love each other now. Why? Because they were forced to be hospitable to one another. Did they want to? Oh, no. You have to trick them. We're going to play a game. But they're not much different than the rest of us, are they? We come to church, we rub shoulders. But do we practice genuine hospitality without grumbling? Do we serve? Because hospitality is about service. It's about caring for others. It doesn't mean you're making food for people. It means you're serving them. And what percentage of people in the church serve, really serve? I mean, it seems to me there should never be a ministry inside the church. But I'm not saying all the ministry has to take place inside the church. I mean, we ought to serve 
generally across the board. We ought to serve in the places we work. We ought to serve in the community. We ought to serve. We ought to be people of service. Why? Because we're sober-minded and alert, and we understand we're on mission, and we're prayerful in that way, and we love people, and that covers over a lot of imperfections in the world and in society and culture. We're not fixing everything, but we're making a difference, and we're hospitable. We're serving. We are helping people have a better life by the sacrifice of our own time and energy because we know that our own life is not about just us. It's not about perpetuating our own existence. It's about getting involved. And I don't know what the indictment of the world is when we say the world is suffering from lack of meaningful connection. What are we doing about it? What are we doing about it? We're to be hospitable. And finally, he says, number five, get the first things First, each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Where's your conquest? Or have you just decided that your life is at a stage where it's all about consolidation? I'm just, I'm just trying to get myself, I'm just, you know, fixing my nest so I feel comfortable. I'm just, I'm just trying to get everything. What I'm really trying to do is trying to eliminate any discomfort in my life so I can eventually have a soft landing. I'm just going to have a soft landing. I figure I've earned it. I had a lot of conquest early, so now late, I'm not having very much conquest. I'm just kind of, you know, coming in for a landing. When I first came to this church, right up the street was an older couple. She was in her 80s, and he was in his 90s. In fact, their kids are still here. Bob and Jesse Deacon. Bob didn't come out to a lot of things because he was in his 90s. Though if you went to his house, he would tell you an endless string of jokes, and he would play the piano as if his entire life depended on playing the piano. It would be a rousing experience. Jesse would call me every Tuesday morning. And she would say, Pastor Dave, how can I pray for you? I don't know why this is so hard for me to tell. And I'd say, well, this is what's going on, Jesse. You know, 28-year-old kid, first church I'm pastoring, 30 people, tired old building. She'd call every Tuesday morning. I mean, my phone would ring, 9 o'clock. I'm getting ready to pray, Pastor Dave. What do you want me to pray for? And I'd say, oh, well, here's some things you can pray for. When she died, and my phone didn't ring anymore, it was a gaping hole. So when you have a woman who's in her upper 80s, but she's on mission, and she's doing what she does with the love and hospitality, it is 30 years later. My life has changed. I'm shaped by that experience. We're not done. You're not done. It's not over. There is conquest to be done. There is something to accomplish. Be sober-minded and alert so that you can pray and love each other deeply because it covers a multitude of sins. And be hospitable without grumbling and do everything that you do 
to the glory of God so His grace may be manifest in the world. Be on mission. I'm going to invite the band to come back. Pray with me. God, we give you thanks that you're never finished with us. You invite us into space with you. You call us to purpose. You look at who we are and where we are in the stages of our life and of our journey, and you renew conquest in each one of us. And and I pray that you would remind us that the end of all things is near. And whether that means you're coming soon, or whether it means our life is short, or whether it means we need to wake up and get out of the fog and reprioritize our lives, whatever it means, we want to see the life we are living in the appropriate proportion, but not just our own proportion in proportion to your word and your call and your mission. We want to get first things first. And so would you help us to be in our right mind and to bathe our lives in a therapeutic kind of prayer that can heal the deep places of our own confusion or hurt and pray that kind of prayer over others that the Spirit of God might heal and do work that only you know and can see and teach us to love each other and to be hospitable without grumbling and to use the gifts that we have been given not for our own ends but for the cause of the kingdom of God. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As we prepare our hearts for this table, Lord, we recognize that you allow this table for those who have confessed their sins and received forgiveness. And maybe in the room right now, there are some who have not prayed that simple prayer, maybe some online, maybe some who will watch in the course of this week. As we pray that prayer of confession together, I ask you, God, to speak into those lives, and they might pray this simple prayer of confession and invite you into their hearts. Lord, we seek you. We believe in the power of this moment. We believe in the mystical way in which you inhabit these elements and then offer to nourish places in our soul that we're not even sure we know need nourishment. So do your work. We prepare our hearts for this table by confessing to you our sins. Your word teaches, 1 John 1, 9, when we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And we give you thanks. now I ask that you would apportion grace to every person as there is need. Some in the room, some at home preparing their own elements, we believe in your grace in such a way that we take all of those elements and we now dedicate them to you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And everyone said together,
the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was broken for you, preserve you blameless unto everlasting life, take and eat in remembrance that Christ died for you. The blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was shed for you, preserve you blameless unto everlasting life, take and drink in remembrance that Christ died for you, and be thankful. And now, God, I pray your grace and blessing over this congregation. I ask that you would meet the needs and that you would lead us and guide us and call us into new places of conquest. And I pray your grace over each person in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Will you stand as we respond to the word? Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.